Hey everyone, this is Jake Milwee. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you would ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. All right. Good morning, everyone. Can you all hear me? Well, good morning and welcome. I am so excited to be here with you all. My name is Adam McIntyre, and uh, truly, I'm honored to be here. I'm so excited to be here, uh, especially because if you don't know me, um, this very room, this is where I came to know Jesus 14 years ago now, back in, uh, is that 14, 2007? Yeah, it's 14 years, uh, 2007, uh, through Chris Henderson and through Mike Skinner, um, who quickly became some of my best friends. They introduced me to Jesus, and this church became uh, my first true uh, experience with Christian community, and uh, it's something that I, I still miss this church every single day, and I'm, I'm so thrilled uh, to be back. In fact, uh, I was married right here on this stage. Uh, Chris Henderson officiated it uh, almost 10 years ago. Oh, actually, over 10 years ago now, and which is crazy to think about, and uh, so I just have a lot of fond memories of this place, and I'm just so thrilled, so excited to be back, so thank you all for having me. And uh, so today, uh, we're actually going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be kind of getting back to basics. Since this is the place where I came to know Jesus really for the first time, uh, I thought that we would get back to basics and we talk about um, what does it actually look like to follow Jesus. I know that y'all are typically used to having uh, these theological and and intellectual heavyweights up here preaching mind-blowing sermons. And so, uh, you know, maybe next time I come, we'll do something like that. But uh, for this week, we're just, like I said, getting back to basics, and we're going to talk in real practical, tangible terms uh, about what it looks like to actually uh, follow Jesus. And so, um, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to 1 Peter 4. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. I figure if we're going to talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus, uh, Peter is a good source of information for that, since he was the rock that um, Jesus chose to build his church upon. Um, so I figure he has, he's got some wisdom for us. So First uh, Peter 4, verses 8 through 11. Here we go. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so that seems easy enough, right? Uh, Yeah, just, you know, love each other so deeply that it covers sins. And, uh, you know, offer hospitality always and serve with the strength of God and speak as if you're speaking for God right? That all sounds pretty doable. Actually, what it sounds like, it sounds like he's just telling us, just be Jesus. Like all of those things I just listed, that sounds just like Jesus. So pretty much that's what it means to follow Jesus, right? Just be Jesus. And I think that's actually exactly what Peter is telling us here. He's telling us, if you want to follow Jesus, then you need to be Jesus to others. Just as Jesus was the incarnation of God, we are now called to be incarnations of Jesus, right? Jesus was the incarnation of God on earth in sandals. We are now called to be incarnations of Jesus in sneakers or, uh, you know, dress shoes or flip-flops or just not Crocs, all right? Let's just, only heathens wear Crocs. So um, <laughs> it's okay if you wear Crocs, I promise. Um, but let me tell you why this is so important. 
and then we'll get into the practical stuff. Um, there are a lot of people in this world who have never once experienced love. Um, there's a lot of people in this world who've never been told, I love you, right? Or maybe they've been told, I love you, by someone who's abusive to them, or that manipulates them, or takes advantage of them. Or maybe the one person that ever really did truly love them has now passed away. And so if you were to go to that person and say, hey, did you know that God loves you? Did you know that Jesus loves you? What are the odds that they're going to believe what you have to say? I'd say slim to none. They're probably not going to believe you because they've never experienced it. They've never experienced that love. Same thing with mercy, right? If you were to go to someone who is just riddled with guilt and shame because of mistakes they've made in the past, because of sins that they've committed in the past, and you were to go to them and say, hey, did you know that Jesus forgives you? You are forgiven. They're going to say, that's great, but right now I feel full of shame and guilt, so I don't believe you. It's because they've never actually experienced that mercy for themselves. It's easy to say it, but it's another thing to actually believe it. You need to experience it. And that's why it's so important for each of us to actually become the incarnation of God's love and mercy. In fact, Jesus commanded us, be merciful as my Father is merciful. And Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so when we act lovingly towards someone, and when we actually show someone mercy, we make God's love and mercy credible and real, right? We make it something that they can actually experience for themselves. And so I think that's what Jesus, following Jesus is all about. It's about loving others and showing them mercy as if you were Jesus, to make God's love and mercy credible and real. So now comes the big question of how do we do that? Easier said than done, right? Like how in the world do we embody the, the radical love and mercy of Jesus, well, I think the answer is that we, uh, we take baby steps. That's the answer. We, we start small. And uh, none of us will ever fully get there, but we still push every day. We start small. And so um, the, uh, that's what we're going to talk about right now. I want to give us two just real practical, simple baby steps that we can start, that we can do today, right now. As soon as we leave this room, we can start implementing these steps. And so the first step has to do with embodying the mercy of Jesus. Uh, and really, it's more of a, an exercise in like self-reflection uh, more than anything. But it's this. When you encounter other people, I want you to ask yourself, am I viewing this person through the lens of judgment or through the lens of mercy? And it could be anyone. It doesn't matter. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be your neighbor. It could be a stranger at the grocery store. Ask yourself, when I look at this person, am I viewing them through the lens of judgment or the lens of mercy? I'll give you, kind of, I'll give you an example of what this looks like, and it's kind of a silly example, but hopefully it illustrates the point. So my wife, Kathleen, and I, we have two kids, uh, Juliet and Scarlett. Juliet is four, and Scarlett is two, and I love them so much, and it's just been such a joy to be locked in a house with them for the past year and a half with no escape. It's been wonderful. I've loved it. And um, <laughs> Juliet, our four-year-old, um, she, let me say this, 95% of the time, she's amazing. She's such a good girl. I'm so proud of her. I love her. But then there's 5% of the time where uh, she's not those things, and she just can become uh, a monster. And uh, <laughs> uh, recently, so my morning routine typically starts at 6.15 in the morning, and it's my favorite part of the day, or it was a favorite part of my day, because it was the only time where it was just me and my thoughts, and I could just be alone. But then Juliet has decided recently to alter her schedule as well so that she can be up with me at 6.15 every morning, which, again, is great. I love it. And uh, so Juliet, um, she wakes up with me, 
And I can tell just immediately, this happened a few weeks ago, and I could just tell immediately that she was just in a mood. Like she woke up at the wrong, on the wrong side of the bed, and, uh, and I could tell because the morning started with her just immediately uh, ha- making a list of demands. Like the first thing she said was, Daddy, give me a banana. I said, okay, that's not how we ask, but it's too early. I don't care. Here you go. Here's your banana. And then she stares at it, and she goes, open it for me. And I said, Julia, I know you know how to open a banana. You know what? It's okay. Here you go. Daddy loves you. Whatever. And then she proceeds to take a single bite, and she then looks at it, and she drops on the floor. She goes, I don't want that anymore. I want a popsicle now. And I said, absolutely not. The sun's not up. Where, you can't have a popsicle for breakfast. That's insane. And then she gets whiny. She goes, why? Well, because it's uh, not breakfast food. Why? Because it's sugar and water. It's not healthy for you. Why? Because if it was made of something else, it wouldn't be a popsicle anymore. And I made the mistake of then getting in a debate with my four-year-old, who, by the way, <clears throat> my four-year-old has also recently discovered the uh, art, and by discovering me, perfected the art of throwing a temper tantrum. Like, she's getting real good at it. And so we're debating, going back and forth, until eventually she just falls on the floor and just starts pounding the floor with her fists, and she's kicking, and she's just screaming about how she wants a popsicle. And I'm, at this point, I'm, I'm so tired still. I haven't even had my coffee yet, and I'm just looking at her, and I'm thinking, like, this child is so ungrateful. How can she be so disrespectful? Like, I, how did I raise her to act like this? I can't believe how awful she's acting right now. And then I start spiraling, right? Because, like, I'm, I'm worked up now. I'm getting really angry. So, like, eventually gets to the point where it's like, she's probably going to grow up and become, like, a serial killer. And when she gets caught, they're gonna, she's going to blame it on me because I didn't give her popsicles as a kid. And, like, that's what's going to happen. And, um, but that is, that's the lens of judgment, right? And in my better moments when I've had my coffee, uh, and I, I'm able to wear the lens of mercy, I would look at her and be able to say, oh, you know, she's tired. She's confused. Like, she doesn't understand. Also, she's four. Like, she's four year old, years old. She has all these big emotions, and she's so little. She's such a little body with big emotions. She doesn't know how to handle them, so this is how she's handling it. And again, she's four. Like, my iPhone is older than her. Like, I can't expect her to act like a full-grown, mature adult all the time. The fact that she acts that way 95% of the time is a miracle that I should be super thankful for. Right? That would be the lens of mercy. And that's what the lens of mercy is all about. It's about looking at someone else generously. The lens of mercy is about looking at people with empathy, about putting yourself in their shoes, trying to understand their pain, trying to understand why they make the decisions that they make. And really what it's about is about seeing the other person as a human being, about seeing them as someone who uh, was created by God, who is loved by God, which is how we are called to see them as well. And however, I don't think that it would be much of a stretch to argue that um, a lot of Christians right now, myself included, are not great at adopting the lens of mercy. In fact, I'd say a lot of us are wearing the lens of judgment almost all the time. And I mean, especially in today's climate. I mean, we see someone else. It could be a stranger at the grocery store. It doesn't matter. We see someone else and we immediately size them up and we try to see, hey, whose team are you on? Like, do you believe the same things that I believe? Did you vote for the same person I voted for? Do you have the same friends as me? Do you have the same enemies as me, right? Do we have the same goals in life? 
Like we immediately just start sizing people up. And if you look throughout Scripture, Jesus' own followers were doing the same thing. I mean, they expected the Messiah to come and lead this like conquering victory against their enemies where they would destroy Rome. And instead, when Jesus shows up, anytime he talks about Rome, he's like, yeah, I mean, you know, pay your taxes and don't act like a fool. And then later, he actually tells them, actually, you know what? I want you to go make disciples of the Romans. Go love them. Go show them mercy. Go spread the gospel to the Romans. And he calls us to do the exact same thing, but we can't even begin to do that if we don't drop the lens of judgment and adopt the lens of mercy. So that's step number one. Just asking yourself, how am I looking at this person? Am I looking at them with judgment or with mercy? And the second step is another, it's a simple, practical step, and it's a, it's a way to embody the love of Jesus, and it's this. Just be present and pay attention. That's it. Be present and pay attention. I am convinced that love is rooted in presence and attention. And in fact, the older my daughters get, the more and more I believe this to be true. So my two-year-old, Scarlett, anytime she's in the room with me, and if I'm on my phone, I'm not paying attention to her, she does this thing where, so I'm like staring at my phone, and she'll kind of scooch over towards me, and she'll tilt her head to like where it's in front of the phone, and just like slide her head in, like in front of the phone, in front of that field of view, as if to say, hey, look at me. Like, I'm adorable. I'm so cute. I'm way more interesting whatever it is you're looking at on your phone. Like, pay attention to me. Look at me. And in fact, my four-year-old says that all the time now. That's like every day. She says it probably 30 times. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And then she does like a weird jump thing in the air that I've seen her do a hundred times already. And, but every single time, I'm like, wow, that was amazing. I hope I get to see it a hundred more times, right? Because that's what makes her feel loved. And uh, could you imagine if she was like, Dad, look at me. And she does her twirl thing or whatever it is she's doing, and then she looks over and sees me just staring at my phone. Or if I were to go like, yeah, that's great. I've seen you do that, though, before. You need to get some new material, right? Like, come on. Like, that would just crush her, right? That would make her feel not loved. Love is rooted in presence and attention. I don't think it's just kids that need presence and attention. I know that for me, I feel loved um, when I'm in a group conversation. And by the way, if anybody's ever been in a group conversation with me, you know that I'm very awkward in them. It's like I don't know when to interject. One-on-one, I'm fine. But like, if it's a group of people, I think I, like, I think slower than other people. And, and so like, as soon as I finally think of something to say, the conversation's already moved on to something else. I'm like, ah, it's too slow. And, uh, but when someone, when we're in a group conversation, someone says, hey, Adam, what do you think about this? That makes me feel loved because that tells me they care about what I think. They, they care. They want to know what I have to say. Or even better is when I'm in a group conversation and I finally do muster up the courage to like speak out and say something and then someone interrupts me and like speaks over me, that is a great way to just totally deflate me. Totally like just I'll never say anything again in that conversation. But then when someone else notices and they circle back around, they say, hey, Adam, what were you going to say? I noticed you're about to say something. What were you going to say? Again, boom, fills me right back up, makes me feel loved because they care about what I have to, what I have to say. They were paying attention to me. And that is... Uh, honestly, it's, and it's one of my favorite qualities about Jesus as well, is that he always noticed the person who everyone else overlooked. Always. He would always give special attention to those who in society, society ignored or just moved past, right? Like children, women, foreigners, sinners, outcasts, the unclean, the sick, outlaws. I, yes, he would heal them. Yes, he would forgive them. But a lot of times he was simply just present with them. And he listened to them. And he treated them like human beings, like they mattered. And I think that's because one of the most loving things we can do 
is to show someone with our actions, by being present, by paying attention, like, I see you. I care about you. I care about what you have to say. I care about what you think. I want to know what you're thinking. That's just one of the most loving things that we can do. And I think that when we practice those two steps of adopting the lens of mercy, of being present and paying attention, that is how we begin to embody the love and the mercy of Jesus. We become the incarnations of Jesus when we do those things. We become living, breathing testaments to the truth of the gospel. And then through you, when you do that, people will meet Jesus. Just like how I met, just like how I met Jesus here, through Mike, through Chris, through others. People will meet Jesus through you. I want to share one last story with you that I think um, illustrates um, what this looks like, what this looks like in real life when somebody embodies the love and mercy of Jesus. And I actually think I shared this story here before, but it was in 2014, which was seven years ago. Uh, more than that. Yeah, seven years ago. I'm terrible at math. Uh, and so, you know, even if you've heard it before, you've probably forgotten most of it, so I think it's okay. Uh, but I also love this story, too, because it's about my wife, Kathleen. And so this story takes place in 2012. And at the time, I was the junior high pastor at Faithbridge uh, Church up in Spring, Texas, and my wife and I had only been married a year, and we were in uh, this apartment complex that was on 1916 T.C. Jester. And if you know anything about that area, it's not the greatest area. It's pretty rough. We're right behind the Walmart uh, there. And, uh, but the apartments themselves, they were, they, like, they were nice. And again, we didn't have like live-behind-a-target kind of money, but like, it was like a good place to live. Like, it was fine. Um, but one day I come home from work, and I see that there's a strange cell phone sitting on the kitchen counter, and it's plugged in, it's charging, and uh, it was uh, like a flip phone, uh, which immediately caught my attention, because it's 2012, right? Like, smartphones are, they're already doing good, and so everyone had them, and so it was just strange that there was a flip phone on my counter charging, so I, I call in Kathleen, I ask her, hey, whose phone is this? And Kathleen said, oh, it's Kyle's. It's Kyle's, got it, okay. Um, who's Kyle? She goes, oh, it's, uh, you know the homeless people we see on the corner in the Walmart uh, over there, yeah, it's one, of, it's one of those guys. One of the homeless guys. Okay, um, why do you have Kyle's phone? And she goes, well, I offered to charge it for him since, you know, he didn't have a place to charge it. And, and so I said, well, I, I can charge it back at my house. And cool, cool, cool. Uh, so how do you know Kyle? And uh, she goes, oh, we had lunch. Oh, you had lunch. A uh, couple more questions. Um, where are you having these lunches? Is it just you and Kyle? And are you insane? Like, are you trying to get kidnapped? Like, what is happening? And then in that moment, um, looking back now, I realized that I was wearing the lens of judgment, hardcore. Uh, and I was a hypocrite because I could preach all day long about loving the poor and loving the least of these and loving the oppressed. And then my immediate reaction to hearing the story about Kathleen is fear and suspicion and anger. And I was viewing Kathleen through that same lens of judgment as well, because I remember thinking, like, who in the world, like, what kind of wild card did I marry? Like, who does this? Like, that's crazy. That's like, who just decides to spend their afternoon hanging out with homeless people in the corner of a Walmart parking lot? Like, that's, that's crazy. And side note, but I think it's funny that a lot of times the acts that we view as crazy uh, end up being the most Christ-like. Um, anyway, so Ka- Kathleen, she calms me down. And she responds to, to my question. She said, don't be ridiculous. Like, no one's getting kidnapped. What are you talking about? Um, and she goes, it wasn't just me and Kyle. It was me and Kyle and Tex and Amy. And, uh, and she's like, and they're all very nice. And she, 
proceeds to tell me how she spent most of the afternoon with them. Like she bought them lunch and then hung out with them for a few hours um, and just listening to them, hearing their stories, hearing about their struggles. No judgment, just only mercy. And she was present with them and she paid attention to them. And later that evening, she brought me along with her to go return Kyle's phone. And as we pulled up next to their car, so uh, Kyle did have a car, and that's where the three of them lived. They lived in the car. And so as we pulled up next to Kyle's car, I was definitely still wearing the lens of judgment because I immediately start scanning the scene, looking for anything to justify my feelings of fear and suspicion. So I'm looking for like drugs or, or needles or, or weapons or, or whatever. Um, I didn't see any of that, but what I did see were three people, Kyle, Tex, and Amy, and they looked like the world had just chewed them up and spit them out. They looked tired. Uh, They looked just beaten down, just run down. I mean, these are the people that everyone else ignores. Or if they do pay attention to them, they look at them with fear and suspicion. And these people, they just could not seem to escape the lens of judgment, no matter what they did. They had names, Kyle, Tex, and Amy, and they were tired, and they were broken, and the world was passing them by. But then, Kathleen jumped out of the car, and I'll never forget the look in all their faces, the way their expressions changed. I wish I could show you. It was absolutely incredible, and and to take a quote from St. Therese, just the sight of Kathleen, it made all of their sad souls bloom. And all three of them just immediately sat up in their chairs and they, their weary, tired expressions changed into joy and excitement just at the sight of Kathleen. And I remember thinking like, man, wow, that, they are like legitimately stoked to see her. see her. I wonder why. And now I know. Because I believe that in that moment, she became the incarnation of Jesus to those people, to Kyle, Tex, and Amy. Anytime anybody else looked at them, If they even noticed them at all, they would see criminals, they would see drug addicts, they would see burnouts, but not Kathleen. Kathleen viewed them through the lens of mercy. She saw saw human beings with stories, with struggles, people that mattered. And so she was present with them. She paid attention to those stories. And as a result, their sad souls bloom. I truly believe that they met Jesus in Kathleen that day because she embodied the love and mercy of Jesus. And so it makes total sense then why they were so excited to see her, why they were filled with such joy just seeing her. And on a side note, by the way, that's, Jesus sees you the same way as well. He doesn't see any failures. He doesn't see your sin, your mistakes, how you don't live up to whatever expectations you have. He just sees you, the child that he loves with a type of love that we can't really fathom. And he calls us, to love others the same way. He gives us grace upon grace upon grace, and as a result, we are called to go out and to offer his love and mercy to everyone, to embody it in the same way that Kathleen did. I think that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so my challenge is to take those two small steps of just viewing others through the lens of mercy, just being present and paying attention, and just go out and make some sad souls bloom. Let's pray. Um, Father, first, I'm just uh, so incredibly thankful um, for your love that um, is just beyond comprehension, Um, your love that nobody deserves, but you give it freely anyway. 
um, and your mercy and your grace and how you've saved us, you've redeemed us, you've restored us. Um, and it's just um, overwhelming to think about, but I'm so thankful that that's the truth. Um, and I just pray that in response to your grace, um, in response to your love, that we embody those things, your love and your mercy, and we go out into the world and we share it with others, that we drop our lens of judgment, which just seems so prevalent today, and instead we adopt your lens of mercy. We see other people the way you see them, as beloved children of God, that, um, and that we are willing to pause our busy lives for a moment to just be present, pay attention, with, and pay attention to people, hear their stories, um, and make them feel like they matter, like they're loved. Um, ultimately, Father, I just pray that every single day we, co- we become better uh, representatives of you, that we embody your love and mercy more and more every day. We're able to go out um, and just uh, introduce people to Jesus. Um, Father, we love you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.